And then probably that means, you know, let's say you're a music producer, that means sitting down and getting through that bridge or that intro or that verse that you just, you can't figure it out, but you just need to hammer away at the same thing, which may feel like you're not making any progress. And then you kill that hurdle at some point when you just keep pushing and pushing, and then you'll flow for a little while again, you know? What is up, guys? I'm Sam Matler, and you're listening to the EDM Podcast episode 36. This week, the one, the only, the legend, Booty Vox joins us for an extra special second interview. Don't know who Booty is? He's the founder of Heroic, which consists of a label and management agency for artists such as World, who's been on the podcast, Arc Patrol, who's also been on the podcast, and San Holo, who I'm sure you've heard of. He's the man behind the Music Marketing Academy, a comprehensive course that runs through everything you need to know about building an audience and marketing music well, and he's the author of the SoundCloud Bible. He's also incredibly smart. Uh, The answers he gives in this interview are precise, they're calculated, and they're well thought through. You will want to take notes while listening to this episode, so if you're listening in the car, make sure you listen to it again in a place where it's safe to take notes. In this episode, we talk about a number of things, including SoundCloud Go, is it a feature made out of necessity, how to do your best creative work and beat resistance, Booty's book, The SoundCloud Bible, the third edition, which is launched today, why you should gain traction independently before trying to get a manager, what you should look out for in a manager and what to be wary of, and the fan funnel, how to build your audience and gain super fans. I hope you enjoy the show. Make sure to pick up a copy of Birdie's new book. I had the privilege of reading it last week and it's certainly a must for anyone who's at the stage where they need to start building an audience and a brand. I'll leave a link in the podcast description, but you should be able to go to soundcloudbible.com and find it there. All right, let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by EDM Foundations. EDM Foundations is my course for new producers. Those who've been producing for under 12 months, or even those who've just started. The whole idea of the EDM Foundations course is that you learn the fundamentals of music production by actually doing and not just learning the theoretical stuff. The course consists of over 12 hours worth of streamable video where I walk you through the creation of three songs and give you advice and tips for working on your own original alongside them. We've had over 500 people sign up for this course. Many of them have had great results. If you want to learn more about the course, head over to edmfoundations.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the EDM podcast. Today, I'm joined again by Booty Vocht. Booty, how's it going? Doing very well. Thank you for having me. You know, you sent me an email, I think, last year, around this time, maybe a month before. Uh, we got in touch. You told me about your book. And since then, we've become good friends. I've come to know you a little bit better. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to get you on the podcast again. Here's a fun fact. You were the first ever guest on the podcast. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Episode two. Episode one was with Levi, so it wasn't really a guest episode. Um, And now you're back. I feel humbled. Claim to fame. (laughs) (laughs) Here's something that's popped up in the past few weeks. Uh... Orpheum. I'm sure you've heard of it. I haven't. You haven't heard of Orpheum? No. Oh, makes this interesting. Okay, so it's a 
It's a new SoundCloud competitor, hmm. um, which has been getting a lot of press. And everybody's talking about it as a, as a replacement for SoundCloud. And I think during the first episode we did uh, together, episode two, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about the future of SoundCloud. Do you think SoundCloud is under threat? Uh, do you think a different platform could rise up and take its place? They are just adopting their business model to the point where this, this monetization becomes sustainable. But I also feel that in order for them to do that successfully, but also for them to thrive and keep expanding, they need to get a bigger influx of money. So they've been attracting a lot of venture capital, but there's also rumors that they don't have, yeah, that they're running low on funds and thus need to do more things to make more money, such as restricting plays on embedded players, right? So more people after X amount of plays are forced to go to a website so that they can hear the ads. Um, I think it's inevitable. But it does mean that SoundCloud is growing, and it does mean that rights holders get paid. So all in all, I, I don't think there's a lot to worry about beyond the very small artists complaining like, hey, I can no longer put a track I don't have the rights to up on the platform that I don't own. Do you think Orpheum, without knowing what it is, and this kind of changes things a bit, do you think it has a potential to replace SoundCloud or any platform for that matter? Well, I absolutely have not enough background information to make any valid judgment here. But I would say that there's one big window of opportunity, right? And that's remixes and mixes and basically illegitimate, unclear content. So any platform that could be a a sanctuary for that material at least has the potential to get some degree of traction. Yeah. The flip side of that is... Who wants to put their content on a streaming platform that has no actual listeners? And the listeners are going to go to the platforms with both the biggest amount of music on there, but also the biggest community, because that's actually what makes it engaging, right? So, potentially. SoundCloud has how many users? 170 million? Yeah, I think the latest statistics they published were 175 million active listeners per month. But that number has been, been the same for a year and a half. So I think as they're attracting investment and stuff, you know, they're just using that as the baseline. But, but don't all these other platforms like Orpheum, and there's been a few other ones, don't they inevitably run into the same issues with the copyright? A hundred percent, yeah. It's, um, it's an interesting challenge to see across different streaming platforms. You know, like I spoke about Tradio with you, I think at some point. And then there's Artist Union, the like to download gate, who are now also pivoting to a streaming platform. And the inherent problem with that is that when you're small, you could claim DMCA, right? So Digital Millennium Copyright Act and claim safe harbor and fair use policy, which effectively means that under, under those rulings, they could host content, user generated content and say, hey, that's not really our responsibility. As long as we facilitate the taking down of infringing material, as soon as we receive a request by a valid rights holder. Yeah, yeah. But there's a significant tipping point there because any platform, if they're not just living on investments, are gonna need to monetize. And the second they do that, it means they're profiting off someone else's material. So then the whole thing shifts, right? And getting licenses with majors, if you don't have any rights holder, in fact, you know, if you don't have a monetization mechanism, they're going to be like, okay, why would we do that? You know, And even for Spotify and also for SoundCloud, that means not just paying back retroactively on use, 
and not just right giving very, very equitable royalty rates to the degree that they can support. But it probably also means giving up equity, which is what happened with these two companies. I want to keep talking about SoundCloud for a bit. I hope you don't mind because no, I know you it. get asked, asked about it all the time. But, you know, I, I see these articles getting posted and I always think of you because I know you have knowledge and expertise. SoundCloud Go, I mean, when that first came out, I, I immediately thought it was going to flop. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Go is SoundCloud's answer or actual the, the consequence of them finally having secured licensing deals with the majors. So initially, uh, and actually we should sketch some context here. So for a streaming platform to make money off, off music, right, but also to be sustainable as a business and SoundCloud, you know, they're a public company. Uh, they're not publicly traded, but, but they are like a LLC equivalent. And so that means they need to actually publish their financial statements, you know. They make some revenue based on like monetization, based on plays, because they have some audio ads, but their expenses are way, way higher. And that is because they have investors, venture capitalists, even Twitter recently uh, funded them a little bit. But their expenses are way higher than the actual income coming in. And what that means is that for rights holders who are providing the content, or even if they're not providing, but users are uploading content of which the rights are actually with a Warner, a Sony, a Universal, right? They're going to say, we're only going to license that if we get paid for it. And we probably also want to get paid on what you used previously before you could monetize. Mm. And now SoundCloud Go is that consequence of SoundCloud finally having licensed not just Warner, who were the first, but then also Sony and Universal. And in those deals, and obviously not everything is is uh, disclosed fully, so part of this is just me deriving from what's happened publicly and also making some assumptions, but it's publicly known that they have taken equity in SoundCloud. But at the same time, yeah, yeah. for them to do those deals, they've probably said, we're only going to do this if you can guarantee that on this hard deadline, you're going to make the switch from ad-supported, like YouTube pre-roll ads, right? to subscription a la Spotify, 10 bucks a month. And the difference there is that the CPM, the cost per meal, basically how many dollars or whatever you get paid for X amount of plays, right? Substantially higher because on, on YouTube, right? The only way to monetize is actually by just showing consumers an ad is very, very different and much more diluted than when you have that consumer actually pay 10 bucks a month. Do you think in that case it was a feature made out of necessity? Yes, 100%. Because Yeah, because it seems quite rushed. Well, it did seem quite rushed. It is 100% rushed. <laughs> I think it really went like that. I haven't used it, so I don't know. But, but at the same time, well, there's, there's two sides to that, right? On the one hand, you could say like, okay, that's really, really poor for the, for the user experience in your community. On the other hand, if you're going to need to make that switch anyway, might as well make it a clean cut. Well, did they have a choice? That's my question. Probably not, because they had uh, impeding lawsuits. They were sued by PRS, you know, the big PRO in the UK. And there were obviously a bunch of rights holders, major publishers, etc., who were basically chiming into that deal, right, to put pressure on them. And I think it would have been very easy for Sony and Universal to do the same thing. And the problem, and there's a secondary problem here, and that is that because SoundCloud, and I was just reading some interviews with the founders, because they proclaimed that they very conscientiously chose not to monetize, but instead to go for investment and scale, right? Because monetization increases friction with the consumer, right? Of course. Um, in doing that, 
it actually meant that the investors that created their longevity, their runway, they wouldn't invest for as long as there weren't any deals secured. Interesting. No, that's that's fascinating. Okay. Well, I want to switch gears completely. Okay. This is this is not necessarily music industry related, but it's something I know you're passionate about and, and so am I. We both read a lot of stuff about uh, productivity, how to do your best work. Uh, and I think this is super relevant to creatives, uh, especially producers. So if you could give uh, three pieces of advice on how to you know, do your best creative work, what would those pieces of advice be? Oh, I love this stuff. Okay, 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 okay. So I was listening to a Kevin Kelly interview with Tim Ferriss. I think the second one recently, very, very interesting character. And he said something that I've been thinking about for the past few weeks. And I think it's very, very strong. And so there's this Zen proverb that is, and I may butcher this completely. I think it is when you walk, just walk. When you sit, just sit. Don't wobble. Mm. In other words, if you're going to be doing anything, just do exactly that thing. That means when you're with friends, don't look at your phone. That means when you're working on writing or production, don't have your emails on on the back end. It means fully dedicate yourself to the task at hand. I think that's a beautiful thing to strive for. I think it's also incredibly difficult because we live in a distractive environment, you know? And uh, I think that goes hand in hand with something that you and I have actually both made a public statement about, right? (laughs) Deep work. Welcome to the 11th episode of Booty's Thoughts. In this episode, we're going to dedicate to the deep work challenge. Yesterday, I was talking to my friend Sam Mantla from EDM Prod. And basically, a while ago, we had we'd both read uh, Deep Work. And we made a commitment to each other that we would start tracking our deep work. And then compare each other's performance so that we would have competition as a driver to actually do it and not just talk about doing it, but to really do it. And so a few weeks have passed and then yesterday we're talking and we got talking about deep work again and we're both like, yeah, we really want to do this. We haven't done it as much as we hope to. We set a quota for four hours a day, which turned out to be quite a lot, especially running a business. But a lot of it also is just lack of discipline instead of us not wanting or not being able to do it. In our conversation, we came up with the idea of what if we were able to publicly log the amount of deep work that we did. Deep work challenge, yeah. Yeah, and so deep work, for those who don't know, is basically a coin termed by Cal Newport, who is a very interesting character. And I think he's early 30s. He's a professor of computer technology, but at the same time has two or three New York Times bestselling books Um, One is so good they cannot ignore you, and the other one is deep work, and I think there's a new one underway. And uh, what he says, he says two things in those two books, and boils down to this, and sorry, Cal, I may butcher this again, (laughs) but um, he basically says this, okay, so today we're in a knowledge economy, and to succeed in a knowledge economy, right, and basically that means it's the opposite of a let's say physical labor economy, you know, so Taylorism back in the day, you were swinging pickaxes or, you know, that kind of thing. And so that means that for us, that mostly is sitting behind a computer, doing deep thinking, coding, writing, producing, project management, all those kind of things that really require just dedicated focus, thinking on the task at hand and being creative within that direction. 
And what he also says is, okay, so the value of that, of that kind of work is increasing, but at the same time, the context of the environment we live in, right? So iPhones, emails, pings, push notifications, all that jazz actually creates a bunch of distractions that make the one thing that's most valuable in today's economy harder to achieve. I think that's very interesting. Now, the other thing he says is this is basically in so good you can, uh, they can't ignore you is that there's this generic advice of, OK, you need to do what you love and you're going to be successful. Follow your passion. Yeah. And then you and I know, and, and I adhere with Cal's father here, I think, I think it's a very good premise. And he says, but you're only going to enjoy doing what you're actually competent at or becoming competent at. And anything probably worth doing, you're not competent at from the get-go. Whether that's tennis, coding, writing, content marketing, growth hacking, artist management, all of that stuff. So his premise there is really, it's not about do what you love. It's about do a bunch of stuff, figure out what you like doing the most, then do a lot of that. And then you get this reinforcing cycle where as you become more competent, you achieve more wins, which then reinforces both your confidence, but also gives you a feeling of, hey, I love doing this, meaning you're going to put in more hours. And so that cycle repeats. And if you then take that to the other book, right? So Deep Work, he basically says to become very good at a particular thing, if it's a knowledge work kind in the knowledge work environment, you need to do focused, undistracted work with longer spans of time, let's say two, three, four hours, and do it in a way that we call deliberate practice. So basically it's not just, okay, I'm going to churn out a simplistic blog post with some SEO keywords in there. <laughs> no, it's like you need to push your boundaries in your deep work so that then you expand basically your, your circle of competence, but also um, at the same time, just get more comfortable with expanding that all the time. Because otherwise, right, if you repeat the same thing over and over when it's very simple, you don't per se learn yeah, it's like some people practice the same thing, exact thing for 10 years and never get any better. Exactly. I like that. And, and it is hard. I mean, that's, that's, the big, that, that's the most common thing I've heard from people, you know. I, I say this, I say, sit down. If you've got creative block, writer's block, here's why you've probably got it. It's because you're sitting there, you've got Facebook open on the other screen, your phone's going off, vibrating all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you sit down for two hours and you just force yourself to try to make something, even if you just sit there and do nothing, mm-hmm. uh, you will eventually break through it. But it's hard. Uh, but it's also satisfying. Yes. You know? the, so satisfying. The resistance. Oh, yeah. And when you beat that, I mean, it's the best feeling in the world. For sure. I'm sure you've read uh, Pressfield's War of Art. Yes, I have. I, in fact, I read his uh, another book from him the other day, Turning Pro. Hmm. Tell me about it. Dude, you have to read it. It's, uh, it's like the war of art. It's, uh, it's just as good. But he just talks about being a professional and, and how like a lot of people aren't following, you know, he gets pretty spiritual because he's Stephen Pressfield <laughs> like he does in the war <laughs> of art. But, you know, people aren't following their calling and the calling is something that the way he talks is, is quite cynical, you know, mm-hmm. um, the way he writes. It's like as an artist, as a creative person, you're scared to sit down and create. Like that's why you don't do it because mm-hmm. you're scared of being judged, of, of you know, being critiqued. Mm-hmm. But you just got to fight against that. 
you got to sit down and every day I, I forgot I forgot what book it is but he said like his daily goal is just to beat resistance you know he gets in yeah. he writes for four hours and if he even if it sucks like even if the work sucks he succeeded for the day which I love I just love that 100% and I'm not sure if you agree with this but for me or at least this was my experience when I read War of Arts and he so clarified the concept of resistance then just having that concept in my mind actually made it much easier for me to identify it and then know yeah. that when it occurred that I need to push through. Yes. And and so what what we mean with that is then, so resistance, right? You're trying to do something and something I'm noticing is the more daunting the task, and that probably means the more important the task, the more it's going to feel like, oh my God, I need to do this thing. I'm going to postpone it. You're going to do a bunch of other things that feel more rewarding short-term, but really aren't more important. And then probably that means, you know, let's say you're a music producer, that means sitting down and getting through that bridge or that intro or that verse that you just, you can't figure it out, but you just need to hammer away at the same thing, which may feel like you're not making any progress. And then you kill that hurdle at some point when you just keep pushing and pushing and then you'll flow for a little while again, you know? Exactly. It, I have to say, I, I can't remember the quote exactly, but in Turning Pro, he says, a bad day in the grand scheme of things, like a whole lifetime of creative work, one single bad day is nothing. Like it doesn't even matter. If you sit down, you can't make anything. 10 bad days is nothing as well. Like if you think about it on the scale and, mm. and it's kind of comforting, you know, it's like, ah, oh shit, I'm having a bad day, but it just doesn't really matter. Like no, push for, through and then keep going the next day. For you know, sure. Wake up, do it again. But, and then when you think about those, those guys, I think you were sending me, yeah, yeah you actually sent me this uh, masterclass session by... What's the writer called again? I think it's James Patterson. Oh yeah, he's a, he's an incredible detective writer, right? But his output is absurd, and so I've heard some speculations. He has some ghostwriters, but even even if he does, and he's building a <laughs> franchise, right? Let's say if you write t- twenty published books in your lifetime of five hundred pages, that by itself, irrespective of quality, is already an achievement. So so then when you think about people like that, you know, of course, they're also facing writer's block and resistance and all that stuff. But the fact that they got the product out simply meant they persevered and also that they were willing to just say, I don't care what people think, like whatever, I'll just, you know, and I'll just let it come. And even if they care, they're they're ballsy enough to at least put it out. What what are your thoughts on uh, this whole notion of process over product or end result? Because this is this kind of goes hand in hand with all this advice, and that is what people say, or these experts they say. If you focus on the end goal or the end product too much, mm-hmm. you will feel pressure. You will encounter more resistance than you would otherwise. Mm-hmm. And instead, what you should do is just focus on the process. Mm-hmm. So, if you're writing a book, you know, ten pages a day, maybe not ten pages a day, maybe like five pages a day. <laughs> you know, instead of saying, "Oh, I need to finish this book; it's going to take so long." I mean, do you think that's good advice? I think it's difficult advice because there's two sides to it, right? On the one hand, so I just finished the third edition, right? SoundCloud Bible, and yeah, yeah, it's almost tripled in size. It's sixty-five thousand words, and I've never written something as big as that. And in all honesty, towards the end of that, you know, if just writing, 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 it's pretty lonely and it becomes a drag, you know? So, <laughs> and, and they often say this, and I'm sure you can relate, you know, it's like, it's great having written the book, 
it's not per se great yeah. writing a book. Yeah. So then you hear the process over product kind of saying, and then I'm like, honestly, to a degree, yeah. You know, it's it's like I like creating, but towards the end of that strenuous task, I was like, I want to get this yeah. done with, you know, and then I'm going to feel really happy the product is out. But then, but then you have hedonistic adaptation, right? The book will come out. I'll feel good about myself for a little bit. We'll make some money. And then at some point, you know, it's like, okay, on to the next task. So if it, it's, it's like you're chasing this thing perpetually and you just need to make sure that the process you need to execute on to chase whatever it is you're chasing, whether it's making music or whatever, that you find that enjoyable. Mm. No, that, that, that's so interesting because... It's such a weird feeling, like when you finish, like, I don't know if you had this with, with the SoundCloud Bible, and I do want to talk about that. You start a project like that, and and it's exciting, you know, you've got the whole outline, and you're like, man, when this is finished, it's going to be amazing. And then, like, weeks go by, <laughs> and it kind of gets a little bit more, oh. And yeah, like you said, by the end of it, you just, nah, I want to get this done, uh. you know. In my book, I can't remember his name, but he was like a, a script writer. Mm-hmm. And the moment the, the film was edited, he would work on the next script. Like immediately, he wouldn't take a holiday or anything like that. He did that for like 20 years. Sick. You know, just to keep the momentum up. So I, I can't do that personally, but I think there's definitely a... It's almost like, a yeah, you finish the thing and you're proud and it's like, well, I've stopped doing all this deep work towards a project like i need to start something new because you hate it and you love it at the same time i think it's a personality thing too though because what you're saying about about that guy putting into work every day and it's rather just like that's his a lot of time to do the work irrespective of the project you know like he'll figure out a project he'll just do the work every day and probably by keeping up that momentum it's easy for him i actually found that for myself i'm more of a bursts kind of guy I think I have, I think I have the ability to do four bursts a year. So, so basically of say two, two months, two, three months, probably two, probably six to eight weeks. I think this, this version of the book, literally I, I wrote it in five to six weeks and you know, like right now I'm gathering final feedback, doing the last inter- iteration. So this is actually the, the last week up until the pre-order date where where I'm I'm crunching, but four bursts a year, roughly six to eight weeks where I could work on something. And I like doing that, right? So that might be the new course, that might be the new book, but it might also be a big strenuous uh business thing we're doing, right? So getting a big deal together or a massive push for Sol and Holo to do this massive tour and restructuring stuff on the back. And then you need to set that in place. And then for myself, I find, okay, I crunch, 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 crunch. And, and then also because I do it in bursts, my surroundings are more accommodating, right? So at the same time, I have a girlfriend and she's super supportive, but also I work a lot of hours, you know? So sometimes for her, I, like I can imagine if she could only see me an hour or two hours, let's say three or four days a week, that's, that's hard, you know? And um, in doing it like this, I also sort of get a breeder in between, I feel. Whereas otherwise it's always on the pressure and, and, and you probably also are, but I like having that dichotomy. Yeah. I like that. I suppose I'm somewhat like that as well. Like if I do a few weeks, 
I mean, you work harder than me, but if I do five weeks full on, I need I need a break by the end of it. Um, mentally, you know, maybe not physically, but just to clear clear up my head. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So this is all relevant because like you said, you're finishing up the SoundCloud Bible and I want you to talk about that. It's the third edition. Uh, you got in touch with me last year during the, I think it was the second edition yeah. or after the second edition launch. Um, so... For people who don't know what the SoundCloud Bible is, what is it? And for people who have maybe got the second edition or have been looking at the second edition and are not sure, what does the third edition, what's new in the third edition? Everything. 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 Okay, okay. So let me let me bring this back all the way to the basis. So the reason I wrote the SoundCloud Bible is because when we started our record label, started managing our artists... At first, we were really adhering to the old school chain of thoughts in the industry, right? Which is you need a big label, big publisher, big artist to vouch for your artist, for you to have a shot at doing anything. And then that your success would be linked not to you getting through inertia and getting traction independently. No, it would be someone who would sign a deal and then magically it all happened at once. Right? Which is absolutely not how things work today. And the past three years have been a journey for us experimenting with how we could do everything independently so that that creates the leverage to both build a team with around an artist, right? To build a community with and to really also, and and this is the most important shift in the industry today is everything shifted from, you know, focus on the gatekeepers to focus on the artists themselves and social media and independent distribution and TuneCore, BruteNote, all of that jazz, you know, it means you literally, you can, Build a company around yourself. You could get traction anywhere. You could talk to fans on a first name basis. You could figure out all their statistics. You could email them, monetize them directly. And we've just been figuring out how to do that. And the SoundCloud Bible is just basically me chronicling what we found to work and how you can apply that on a yearly basis. And so when I launched a book, I think in 2014, the first edition, you know, that was based off our knowledge then. And then the last edition was uh, March last year, 2015. But in uh, truthfully, since then to now, I think we've developed so much and experienced so much. Like Son Holo, September 2014, had 2,000 followers. He's now approaching 300,000 on SoundCloud. We've, we've literally done Tomorrowland twice, Coachella, Ultra Music Festival, Hard, Veld, we launched a new record label for him, Bitbird, right? 140K on SoundCloud, Heroics at over 60K. And, um, you know, so the perspective of sh- has shifted. So I thought I knew what I was doing a year ago. And now I think more so I know what I'm doing. But still, you know, it's, it's this journey. And um, I mean, 2017 edition will be, uh, will be another level. We hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. One thing that... Uh, I really liked in the book, you know, you were talking about how you kind of got into into all of this, into, into the music industry, into artist management. You'd studied business. Uh, was it business something specific or just entrepreneurship? No, business administration. That's right, administration. And and I, was it Tim? Duck mm-hmm. Date? Were they called Duck Date yes. back then? No, they were they called Bazin and Helder. That's right. I remember I remember you guys telling me about that. Which I is, saw the sticker on Tim's laptop. Which is actually, and this is a little insider secret. I don't think we've ever publicly spoken about this, but Bazin and Helder, it's like uh, Dutch for bosses and heroes. 
That's right. And yeah, that yeah. was the seed that then led to me starting an agency with a, my, my old partner called Heroes Management. And then, you know, we split ways, but then I consolidated what was left of the agency into what Tim and I started and became heroic. Mm. You see the heroes, <laughs> so cool. the heroes, the heroic. Yeah, heroic. yeah, yeah. But but what I like about it is, you know, you were you guys were friends and you're kind of like, let's do this together. And I think that a lot of artists out there who, you know, some are quite talented, they just they're not sure about how to go about getting a manager. And um one thing I kind of I'm not sure what you think of this, but I think it's easier, um, especially if you have no experience in business or you know, trying to build a career or something like that, it's easier to do it with someone else. Mm-hmm. It's why Silicon Valley, you know, venture capitalists normally won't invest in a company with one founder because uh, they fail more often. Not always. Uh, but do you think that's a good idea? Let's say there's an, a producer listening to this. They have a friend who who's very well organized, like you say, mm-hmm. uh, and, and likes the prospect of managing an artist. Do you mm-hmm. think that's a good idea? It could be. It very, very much depends on a specific scenario. And... Okay, so let's say you have a business-oriented friend. Let's say you're a music producer. You make progressive house. You have 5K on SoundCloud. You're not making money yet. You've DJed at a local pub sometimes. You probably use a tractor because you don't understand CDJs yet. And that's kind of where you're at, right? And what I prescribe in the book, and I think this is how the industry works today, is that all the industry professionals, right, any label A&R, publisher, big manager is going to look the signs of online traction before they even consider reaching out to you. And then the higher their position in the industry, right? The higher their standards are going to be before they even consider that. So think about Scooter Braun, you know, who does Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, et cetera. They will only talk to you when you're like a top 10 influencer on Instagram or, you know, that kind of thing, or when, when you're topping the SoundCloud charts. And obviously what you'll need at the start to get traction is someone who's willing to commit relentlessly to what you're doing. And I was actually that business oriented friend, you know, for Short and Tim at the time. Like literally we're sitting in my mother's attic when they put out a track on SoundCloud, zero followers. This is five years ago, got 10,000 plays. And I was orienting on starting a business and was literally like, Hey, you guys probably don't see, we have a major opportunity there. You should, you should do something. I'll manage you. Um, but so, it could absolutely be the right move. And I think as an artist, it means you need to realize that, for example, to get to the level of a song holo, right? There's a big team there. And so that means he has a manager, booking agent in America with an assistant, worldwide booking agent with a coordinator, Australian booking agent, French booking agent. There's a publisher with also an assistant. He has a tour manager who is also his visual artist. And then I also have a co-manager, an assistant who helps me. So basically to support all of that stuff, we built this whole infrastructure and there's no way to get to that level if you don't find people who believe in you. And this is a very tiered process, you know? So one of the things you find today is that as an artist, you'll get a lot of traction on SoundCloud independently. Then that might be enough for you to reach out to labels who are maybe just SoundCloud labels with a distribution deal or maybe even bigger ones. And that could lead to your first 100,000, 200,000 plays. And you keep doing that and your odds improve. Then that will lead to enough leverage for you to find a manager. Then that will lead for you to have enough leverage to find 
a booking agent in the territory where you're getting the most plays. And that's where everything really starts going. You mentioned, you know, a manager like Scooter, uh, he'd only pick the guys at the top. Mm. This is a question I have to ask out of curiosity because I'm not sure how it works, but surely if someone gets to that stage where Scooter looks at them and goes, yeah, I want to manage them, Mm. surely they have a manager. A hundred percent. So how does that work? I was actually doing some research yesterday and to give you two examples, the way that works is then a situation is created that you call co-management. Usually what happens is the original manager, right? Because I I think that's one thing you need to realize as well. Typically, an artist that becomes successful will have a team around them that does nothing else but build, 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 build. And they're so loyal and they're so committed. And that's really what you need to succeed in today's industry, right? So when you look at an artist like G-Eazy, you know, his manager is one of his best friends. It's all independent. They leveraged all their independent success to then get a major distribution deal. It's all indie. Then you look at someone like Martin Garrix, who was represented by Vatso, who was also someone who's worked with him for a long, long time. But he's co-managed by Scooter Braun. Then you look at someone like Lil Dicky, you know, the, the humorous rapper, which I love, by the way, but also he has a good friend doing his management and now he's co-managed by Scooter Braun. And I think what they have is, in their particular cases, they're incredibly entrenched in entertainment industry and, and the LA culture, which allows them to do deals with majors, to push through to radio, etc. But I think also in And I don't want to speak for them, but this is how I would look at that is probably if an act got that far and you want to work with them, I don't think it's about getting the existing manager, the longtime friend out. It's rather like recognizing that that's a killer team and then seeing what you could do to build something even bigger. And that probably means, you know, managers typically take between a 15 and 25% cut, depending on the clouts and the leverage. And that may mean they split the management commission or whatever. But if that leads to a bigger pie, then that's a win-win for everyone. So it's kind of like how, to use a business analogy, you know, let's say someone who's a new entrepreneur builds a company uh, and then they bring someone else in to be the organization or maybe even CEO because that person has 20, 30 years of experience and this person knows that they can't take it to that next level without someone with those kind of resources, connections, experience. 100%. Awesome, awesome. Uh, however, like given all this, there are some, what word should I use? Cutthroat, maybe exploitative managers out there. Uh, this is the music industry. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure you aren't one of them, uh, right? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I hope kidding. so. <laughs> I tried to tell myself I'm not. I think my artist thinks so too, so. <laughs> no, no, you're good. But uh, let's say, Let's say there's a talented artist listening to this and they're starting to gain traction. They're starting to get approached by people uh, wanting to, you know, take them to the top. Mm-hmm. What should that person be wary of? Are there any, what, what are some signs of, of bad or kind of parasitic managers? Interesting question. Okay. So first thing I would do is I would look at what they've done before and Let's say it's your business-oriented friend, right? Then probably there's no track record. So in that case, you probably want to work on a one to two year deal with a commission. If it's your best friend, right, with no track record, that's probably 15% off gross profit. So if you're if you're touring, for example, you know, then that would not be off the gross. It would actually have 
travel costs and hospitality deducted, right? Because otherwise you may break even, whereas the manager makes money. And I, I don't feel mm. like that's a fair deal. Um, no. When it's established managers in a scenario like this, look at what they've done before. I think also you need to have them show what they can do for you before you commit to a deal. And uh, I'll give you an example, and I obviously can't be too specific here, but we just signed an actual sure. Drulu for management. And they are incredible. There are two guys from the Netherlands, one producer, one visual artist. And so a producer is such great production. Percussion is so good. It's like the best you've ever heard. And then uh, Heino does the visuals, you know, his visual, he does 3D rendering stuff. He does post-production, like on the side, he's working on the Under Armour job, that kind of thing. Wow. And he's really, really good. And so they're an act that, that really kicked off on Bitbird, which is the label we're running with San Holo. And um, we're going to build them out to be the first support act for Son, you know, like, so Son is touring massively right now. And we're going to bring them and start doing Bitbird nights and that kind of thing. And so to them, and this is how we operate, right, is we just start operating as if we're their managers whilst we're negotiating the deal. And then logically, a lot of stuff will happen. And the fact that their first record popped, it's, I think, 1.8 million on SoundCloud now, 1.5 million awesome. on Spotify. We got a sync deal with So You Think You Can Dance. And that's even before we got started, you know. And Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so in that scenario, you know, I don't think we need to prove ourselves very much, but I think if you're looking to sign with a manager, you know, you probably want to ask him like, Hey, I have these tracks I'm working on. Can you get me a bunch of vocalists? Can you get me in the studio with a bunch of people? I'm looking for a booking agent. And then if it's a manager who really believes in you, they'll probably start running for you even before you ink a deal. And American style management, right? Maybe gentleman's agreement. You don't sign a contract. I would a hundred percent urge you to sign a contract. Because a manager is going to be way too close to your financials not to have a deal in place. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is really important. And another thing I would be wary of, and, and this is just really maybe a bit of my own frustration, is with SoundCloud, there are a lot of collectives and there are a lot of repost channels and that kind of thing. And people who really only have the, let's say, the social impact without the business expertise and as a result, there's a lot of young kids, 18 to 20 year olds, you know, who are doing some SoundCloud repost trades and et cetera. And they call themselves managers. And, and that may very well be the starting position where you become one. I mean, I used to be one of those, but that could also go hand in hand with some very foul practices and, and maybe more so towards third parties in negotiations than it is to the artist. So, for example, you know, I would do some dealings with people like that. And they literally behave like children, which then rubs off on the bad, in a bad sense towards the artist, you know? So you need to make sure that the person representing you is actually representative. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. I think that's great advice. Uh, switching gears for a little bit. One concept you talk about in your book, the SoundCloud Bible is this concept called the fan funnel. Mm. Uh, and I love it. I mean, coming from an internet marketing background, it's, it's awesome. Mm. So could you explain what the fan funnel is? Of course. Okay, so fan funnel is something I've basically taken from internet marketing. Absolutely not my original idea, but the implications are really important for anyone looking to build an audience in whatever kind of market. Now, obviously, Sam, you and I, right, we do content marketing, we're teaching people, so we have a funnel of our own, but... 
for artists, it's the same thing. The product is just not articles in a podcast, right? It's great music, it's branding, it's video content, it's being a personality. And so the fan funnel, and I, I want everyone now to sort of visualize an actual funnel, at the top of the fan funnel, you're going to have the platforms where you have the product or the, right, the art that is at the core of what you're trying to achieve. So, and what I mean with that is this, as a musician, right, you're going to have SoundCloud, you're going to have Spotify, maybe YouTube at the top of your funnel. The reason why I say that is you don't have Facebook at the top of your funnel because sure, maybe you're going to post a funny picture or do a video in the studio or like an image of a cat and that might be shared and then people may like it. But it's not as if you're going to acquire new fans for your music through doing that. Mm-hmm. But your music, behind the scenes footage, etc., that will, right? So at the top of your funnel, imagine SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube. And then if you put up a track on SoundCloud, and then part of your audience is already going to follow you on SoundCloud. They may listen to it, like it, but then a bunch of people may repost it and it will be exposed to new people and they may like it too. And now a portion of those people may like it so much that they then follow you on SoundCloud and go one deeper, right? They may then click through to your Insta or through your Facebook or through your Twitter, trying to learn more about you. That's when you get one tier deeper into the funnel. And so that's where you have the more, let's say, community centric. And I mean that in a social sense social media platform. So a Facebook, a Twitter, an Insta, a Snap. And what you can do here is you have an interesting content mix, you know, so that may be showing different sides of your personality, of your project, what your life's like, what your vision is, what kind of art you like. That even goes as far as in the clothing that you wear, which should be aligned with the rest of your brand. And then if you're taking selfie videos on Snapchat, you know, then that's a representation of yourself as an artist. And You know, if you have an interesting content mix, that means you don't put up the same stuff on Facebook as you do on Twitter, as you do on Snapchat, because then why would they follow you on two platforms? But then that means you create this journey for fans, right? Where they listen to your music, they give you permission to market to them more by following you. They go one deeper to check you out on Facebook. They might like you and go back to your Snap and follow you there. Next day, you hit them with a really cool story. And then that might be may mean they go back to your SoundCloud, listen to more music. And from that point, they go from being a follower into being a real fan, aka a super fan. Mm. Mm. And when they're super fans, right, and that's really deep down the funnel, and that conversion is probably going to be 2.5%, 5% off all the followers you have that you acquire, maybe less even. But they are the people who you could actually maneuver to do things, right? So that means have them... Favorite your new playlist on Spotify, have them buy your new merchandise, have them buy tickets for your show before it happens, right? People who really care passionately about your stuff and who are going to tell their friends about what you're doing. And the underlying concept here is basically permission marketing, which is a Seth Godin term. What he says is when someone plays your music right on SoundCloud and they follow you, that follow is a window. It's basically them giving you permission to then market to them more, show them more music, prove to them how awesome you are. And then by doing that, some of them are actually inherently going to reward you for that. And then that may be non-financial, you know, comments, likes, reposts, etc. Then a portion of that may be financial, depending on also, and this is a part of the funnel I don't even talk about in a book. And that's like, well, I do to a degree, but like, how do you put your monetization funnel in place? Yeah, yeah. And that is merch, you know, you could do direct to garments. So basically 
put up a tab on your website where you make t-shirts, but then you don't have to actually buy them in bulk. They just like make them as soon as the order comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, like Printful. Yes. A hundred percent. And get your music up via distribution stores, you know, Rootnode, TuneCore, Symphonic, and uh, make sure it's on Spotify. People could follow and favorite there. You could run pre-orders, that kind of thing. And I think that's all very important. With the fan funnel, you know, you're talking about the music is at the top. That's where people come in. Then they follow you on socials, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Now, we were talking a while back and we both came to the conclusion that trying to use all social media platforms, at least as a business or personal brand, is uh, is unwise. Diluted attention. They're not all necessary. Snapchat isn't that important. I distinct, uh, distinctly remember saying to you, oh man, you got to get Snapchat after using it for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to get Snapchat, man. Like it, it takes me like two minutes a day and you're just like, I understand that, but uh, I'm not going to use it. Mm. And I was like, oh, you're missing out. But I was being stupid because <laughs> I realized how much of a, of a time waste it was. So guys like Seth Godin, Cal Newport, who we talked about, mm-hmm. um, they talk about the pitfalls of, of trying to be everywhere. Mm-hmm. When it comes to electronic music, the assumption is that artists should be on all platforms. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they won't survive. Mm. Do you think that's true? No, I think it's not. And I think the choice is dependent on three things, really. Okay, so number one, what's non-competitive real estate? So, for example, let's say you want to be a social influencer. Then right now, Musical.ly is a great place to be simply because it's very easy to get a lot of traction in a short amount of time. If you're late to the platform, it's going to be much harder. I think another thing is personal inclination. If you are really like a closet hermit that likes production and is completely asocial, Snapchat is probably not your best outlet. And I think the other thing is that you need to pick the social platforms or your outlet, right? Basically, this is all distribution. That's how you should look at it. You need to pick distribution that best aligns with your core product. So for example, Seth Godin, he's very, he's, he's very straightforward about it. He just says, I write books, I blog every day. And what that means is he has a shitty website. He sends an email every day, a newsletter. It's, it certainly doesn't look good, but it does what it needs to do. It communicates his writing. And just by doing that, you know, he's basically leveraging the thing he's best at. I think as an artist, if you really want to develop an engaged fan base, there needs to be an aspect of personality in there. You could play that different ways, you know, like an artist like Zoo is, is marketed anonymously, you know. And so I'm, I'm not sure about this, actually, but I'm assuming he's not on Snapchat snapping every day because that would be mm-hmm. the point. But then for an artist like Sal Holo, for example, who's very extroverted and, and also, you know, he has a certain fashion sense. We're creating this story with Torvald, his visual artist. It's very inherent to our audience building for him to do Snapchat and Insta and show his personality. And so that's a very conscientious choice. And obviously you, you have time you need to manage. So you need to pick what works best. And so I think Instar is very good now. I think Snapchat is very good, but it's very good for artists because they need to do that. But then, for example, for you and I, isn't it better to focus, for example, for yourself on the podcast, for myself on the writing and the products? Like I did this video series called Booty's Thoughts on YouTube, where every week we did a video and uh, we spoke about music marketing, stuff that's in the book and et cetera. And at some point, I just realized I'm doing way too much. We're going to put this on halt. I'm just going to write an amazing... I was going to ask you about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I realize there hasn't been an episode in a long time. Yeah, <laughs> for exactly that reason, because I feel like, okay, if I'm going to allocate two hours a week for that, can I better allocate that time in writing an article? Because, I, yeah, I, I feel that is 
that is more scalable and more in line with what we're trying to achieve. And it was an experiment, you know, we just like said, okay, let's run it for a while, see how it works. And then there's probably not a clear, obvious answer, but isn't it better for an artist who's, who hasn't gained, who hasn't reached that tipping point yet where they've been approached, where they've gained traction and, and they're getting a lot of listens, you know, kind of in that viral loop um, that just goes up and up. Isn't it better for them to focus heavily on one platform? Yes, but I would 100% always tap all the slugs on all the socials immediately. I would and see what happens. Yes, and I would also experiment with all the socials for X amount of time so you could actually figure out what your preference is. Yeah, yeah. I also think that when you notice that your fan base is getting accustomed to interacting with you somewhere, you need to reward them for doing that. And then, for example, some people just have a really engaged Facebook audience, you know? Some people just have a really engaged Snapchat audience. And um, at some point, you may have a team around you and you'll be able to do everything. And uh, up until that point, you need to figure out what works for you best. That makes a ton of sense. I'm, cool. I'm sorry there's no black and white answer here because I don't, I don't have it. What is something that most people disagree with you on? That working 12 hours a day is good. So, so you think working 12 hours a day is good? Yes. And most people disagree with that? I think so. I think if you tell an average person, they're going to say you're going to burn out. That's a hard question, though, Sam. This is the contrarian, que- this is the contrarian question. Mate, that's the Tim Ferriss question. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so let me see if I can come up with a more interesting answer. From a creativity perspective, right? Sure, sure. I don't know off the top of my head. Fair enough. I probably wouldn't either. Okay, I've got another hard question. Mm. I apologize. What's something people never ask you that you wish they did? Well, I think a lot of people ask questions related to what's working for us, right? Why did Sound do well? Why SoundCloud working well? Why, how did the book happen? That kind of thing. I think very few people ask me what's not working. What are you, what, what are you sucking at right now? Like what's your big... Booty, booty, what are you sucking at right now? Doing way too many things at once. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 a hundred percent. You know, I, I, I think there's sort of a survivor bias by, uh, I think there's a sort of survivor bias, right? Where it's like you focus on the things that are working out, but maybe what's more important is figuring out the things that aren't. No, no, you're right. I, in fact, um, I was reading through the, the third edition of your book and I didn't know this, but uh, you, you guys tried making a download, well, you made a download gate called Unlock This, mm. and then you decided to can it. Oh, yeah, that was such a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, okay, so, 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 so for people to get some context on this, so we started a like to download gate called Unlock This, and this is basically before Hive and Artist Union started. So there were, there were two platforms that were the evolution of having a custom tab on your Facebook page where you wrote some HTML script, you know, with you have like a href with an image insert, and then that would go to like, a Dropbox zip of an MP3. Now, there was an evolution from that that allowed you to like it, uh, I think, Facebook and Twitter follow. But so we were, we were just thinking, okay, this all sucks. There must be a much better user experience. You could probably hack around using the SoundCloud API to do a repost trade. And um, we paired up with a bunch of developers in LA and we invested a bunch of money. And literally it was 
myself and Tim and we had Janus or had, had a music in there. San or San Holo was also in it. And um, I was basically like leading a tech company on the side. And we built this to the point where <laughs> on, it was on wor- the side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is, which is ridiculous, you know? And I, I yeah. don't know. I don't like, I think we could have actually, if that were a singular thing, done a great job at growing that, you know, I think we could have competed or outperformed Hive or Artist Union, even though I still think their products are great, but simply because yeah. we came in from such a user standpoint, right? That it was really scratching our own itch to the maximum. But, um, I feel with all of those things, you know, it's, it's so diluting a focus. And I think this was really the biggest lesson for us in, okay, we got to kill our darlings. This is too much. Let's just call it quits. Forget the sunk cost. You know, the fact that we've invested a lot in this up until now doesn't mean we still need to do that going forward. That's just stupid money then, you know, and um, that's where you made that call. Everybody is prone to doing that, to taking on too much. Mm. And I can't remember what it was, but there's some, I think it was just like a mental model and it was on productivity and it's like, you know, I I can't remember, but it was, it was basically saying focus on like one thing. Mm -hmm. That's how you be productive. Like forget all this other stuff, you know, Pomodoro method, work 25 minutes. Like those things help, uh, but they're like 1% little tweaks. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a massive task list and all this diluted stuff, you're just not going to be productive. You're not going to get stuff done. I think for artists, you know, that might mean, um, trying to come up with a logo, like graphic design, trying to like learn how to do this specific music thing and work on an original remix and EP at the same time. It eventually becomes too much. Uh, I do feel, I do feel this is difficult though, because you know, like we've, we've all heard the focus on one thing and the whole plethora plethora of business and self-development books, which essentially preach the same thing in just different formats. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We've talked about this. About a hundred (laughs) percent. And so, I don't know. Something that works for me though is, and I still suck at this obviously, right? Because I'm and managing artists and running a label and running on all those label and a bunch of other stuff. And I'm writing this book, but in making these decisions, I think focusing on one thing is very hard, but the way I justify doing these different projects we are now, right. Is because we clarified or I clarified also for myself, but we also did this as a collective. We clarified the vision. And then once you know what the end goal is, you can ask yourself, is what I'm about to do going to get me closer to where I want to be? Because it's very easy to see shiny opportunities. For example, yesterday, and I'm just, this was just me hypothesizing, right? And it's not something I'm acting upon, but I'm checking out this app musically, you know, and it's ridiculous. You could go to the leaderboards there and you have, you have 13 to 16 year olds with audiences of 7 million people just on musically. Then you check out their Instagram and they're rocking 2 million followers on Instagram and these fucking kids and sorry for cursing, but they have a business email, you know, and, and I'm just thinking this is untapped real estate. I dare bet out of the top 25, you're going to have five future stars, whether on television or pop or whatever. So how easy would it be to reach out and get into that space and be like, Hey, I want to represent you from a management perspective, but this is just another shiny distracting object. that doesn't help us get closer to the vision that we have of empowering artists and integrating the artist journey in the music industry, you know, and building these pillars for education, for the record label, for management, and then getting these divisions out. And that's really the goal for the next five years. And anything that doesn't adhere to that just needs to be cut. 
I love that. I love that. I think that's a better way of looking at it because I think Ryan Holiday said this, but it was in an interview. So for people who don't know, he's a he's an author. He also runs like a, a marketing agency or something like yeah, that. Yeah, brass check. But he said, yeah, yeah. He said, you know, I, I can't, I don't understand how people like, they're just authors. Like I just can't understand that. How can you sit for the whole day and write? You can't. Um, he said he writes for two hours and then after that, he's just he's just done for the day. And then after that, he works on his business stuff. And I like that. I think, you know, you, to some extent, you can't just focus on one thing purely because if we think about deep work, deliberate practice, once you hit that four hour point, most people can't go beyond mm-hmm. that. So you kind of, and you don't want to just work four hours a day on on that thing. You probably need something else to support yourself. So maybe it makes sense to to focus on more than one thing yeah in that regard no no i i I couldn't do that either no honestly but the the vision we have for example is it's quite broad you know it's really building those pillars talk talk about that for a moment just because i know what your vision is but some people might not well yeah okay so we have this saying for heroic it's like our motto which is like empowering creators and what i mean with that is for example, major labels pay twice a year. You know, what we're trying to do with the record labels, pay artists on a monthly basis so that then they could make a living from their music sooner so that then they could make more, better music. That's a reinforcing loop. That's an example of that. Another example is our artist, our graphic designer for Heroic, Andrew uh, Gom. He is the most insane 3D renderer with Octane and all this stuff. And he's rocking an Instagram account with thousands of followers and him being our designer is also a way of doing that. And the SoundCloud Bible is also a way of doing that. But then to narrow it down, you know, what we want to do in the next five years is you basically have different tiers for artists in the music industry, right? You have at the beginning, the noise layer, and then the low tier where you may do a show now and then, then the mid tier where you may start doing your first tours, you know, and the high tier where you're a worldwide touring act, let's say San Holo, and then the top level, Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, et cetera, which is a very small segment. And our education label and management businesses are positioned in these different, these different spots in this journey for an artist. And I think we're uniquely positioned as a business right now, both with the infrastructure we've built, but also, for example, with a leading artist like San Holo to build separate divisions for each of these that could really push artists through this journey and accelerate them. And, and for a portion that may be, they might upstream, right? So it may mean, they become a little bit better at marketing by reading the SoundCloud Bible and they may want to go deeper or their manager may want to go deeper by checking out the Music Marketing Academy. And then that person, you know, may be in touch with myself or my team and then upstream to the record label and then an artist that pops on the label might be upstreamed into the management. Now, we can only support that for a very small section, right? And the higher you go, the more selective it becomes. But I think just for the industry in general, when you think about, and and. I think you're amazing because you're actually helping solve this problem too, is all the stuff that's being taught, the majority is by people who are either not relevant anymore, or it's by people who've never actually made it happen in the first place, but then are making money off it by talking about it, you know? And um, I think think if there's quality educational content that helps people get through the noise better, I think the record label, you know, it gives more artists a chance to pop off of SoundCloud. And the management gives those artists who are actually showing traction, like a Drulu with 1.8 million on SoundCloud. But literally, you know, they're both working side jobs. And right now they finally can make a living off music and have an opportunity to make a living off that. Even if the scale of this is not, we're doing it not for 18 million people, 
But on the management side, we're doing it for four acts. On the label, we're doing it for 20 acts. And, you know, with the educational stuff for a few thousand people, I, I still am very, very inspired by that. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's amazing. Uh, I've got two more quick questions. This one might not be a quick one, but <laughs> given that you're, given that you're, you know, an entrepreneur and you work closely with with artists, do you think there are parallels between entrepreneurship and being a musician or an artist? Yeah, entrepreneurs need to be uh, artists. Need to be entrepreneurs to succeed. Explain. Well, being a successful artist means maintaining a brand. I think maintaining a brand means you need to understand team building structure means you need to understand discipline, means you need to understand financials. You need to have a good degree of operational understanding, even if it is to then delegate that to someone else. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, independence is probably a key trait too. I think that's very true. Mm, Interesting. Cool. Uh, Well, I'll let you go. I've just got one more question Mm. because I want to give people something to to go away and, and learn more and so on. You're an avid reader. What books would you recommend for artists, wannabe artists, wannabe entrepreneurs? Your best books, basically. Okay, so we discussed deep work, which I, which I think is terrific. I think people should read Marcus Aurelius, Meditations. And not because it's a yes. very exciting read, but if you read that, you need to remember that this is the most powerful man in the world. Writing this stuff will he's majority of the time away on a battle somewhere, sitting in a tent, taking the time to actually write down the stuff and then writing the most unselfish, most reflective material there is. And then when you've read that, just keep thinking at whatever you do, just remind yourself that there was this one guy with way, way more weight on his shoulder that was actually to see things truly for what they are. His, his quote on, uh, I have to interrupt, his quote on, on like lying in bed, you know that one? Where he's, he's kind of, oh, he's kind of like, I'd bring it up, but it's quite long. <laughs> he's talking to himself and he's like, why, why aren't you getting out of bed? You know, why are you lying in bed? The animals don't, you know, animals don't just like lie there and do nothing. Why should a human is, oh, but it's, it's cold yeah. out. And he's like, yeah, you know, all that kind of stuff. I got to be honest, man, meditations is like, sits in my toilet like not in the toilet but like I read it <laughs> while I'm on the toilet uh-huh. it's awesome like I come away and I'm super inspired so I would actually recommend people do that if they buy the book definitely I think those philosophical <laughs> books are very good as an exercise not per se to become a deeply spiritual person but because it forces you to reflect on your own life but also just the world in general yeah. um, I think I think in terms of music related stuff a book I read recently was The Song Machine, which talks about Dr. Luke, Max, it, Max yeah, Martin. Yeah. I think it's very interesting to get a perspective of pop industry and hit songs. Yeah. So you may want to check that out. And one of the things I, I found very inspiring to light the entrepreneurial fire was actually the four-hour work week. And we, we all know that, obviously. But if you haven't read it, I urge you to check it out simply because it's an eye-opener from a perspective of there's opportunity everywhere and you just need to make what people want to have. And that also applies to music. That doesn't mean selling out, but it means you need to make what people want to have. 
Of course. It also doesn't mean working four hours a week. No. Which is what a lot of people get hung up on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's it. <laughs> Are you working four hours a week, Booty, no, after, uh, after you're reading well, that? Well, right now I'm working 14 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Hey, man, thanks heaps for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, man. It's always a blast. <laughs>